When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on the president of the Mises Institute, and this is the one and only Jeff Deist. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Zuby. Good to talk to you. 100%, Jeff. Great to have you on. So I've done a very brief intro there with just your title, but for people who aren't familiar with who you are and your work, please tell them a little bit about you. Well, uh, what we hope... The Mises Institute is is sort of a radical anti-school, a counter-school, a lot of bad economics out there, a lot of bad politics, a lot of bad philosophy. So we really exist to try to counter all that uh, and give people a place where they can go outside of their university setting or their high school or whatever they may be, may have uh, things they have to unlearn in life. So that's really what we're about. And we're rooted in the Austrian school of economics, which is, you know, harkens back to the 1800s and has a whole different way of looking at money and banking and how markets work and everything, but it's, it's uh, essentially tied in with the broader ideas of culture and civilization and property and freedom. And, um, you know, it's just interesting to me how organizations like ours uh, interact with what's really all these growing independent voices. And so it, it's, it's fascinating for me to, to see what's going on out there. I mean, someone like you, uh, someone like a Joe Rogan, uh, you know, we can talk about the intellectual dark web, all these different voices. There's just so many people who are coming up now as individuals uh, rather than institutions. And I think that's a very important trend. And, and I think, uh, I hope the Mises Institute has been a small part of that. Mm. So how did you get involved in the Mises Institute? Well, I went through sort of, a, I guess, an obnoxious Ayn Rand period in my early youth. Got over that pretty quickly. Uh, and just I've always been, I guess, a, a real hardcore anarchist, never really saw much use for the state. I always thought that just intuitively that all the things that government tells us that can provide the market can provide better. And, you know, that's that's a pretty uh, mainline perspective today. You have people like Michael Malice out there. Um, but. You know, 25 years ago, that wasn't so typical. That was that was considered pretty radical. And, you know, the beautiful thing about what's happened in the last, let's say, five years, I don't know that if Trump caused it or Trump was a symptom of it. Uh, but I mean, you, you know, this better than me. People are rethinking everything top to bottom uh, institutions, uh, economy, politics, school relationships. 
the whole thing. So, uh, you know, in that sense, it's exciting because I think technology is giving us these new platforms, you know, this ability to be independent and reach people without having to go through the gatekeepers and the editors and all of that. So mm. uh, it's 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 actually, you know, we think that that the I, I guess I'll say the left. We think that the left is so overbearing today and so woke and we're sh and everyone's being canceled and you can't say this and God forbid you misgender someone. But in an, in another sense, you know, we're a hell of a lot freer intellectually than we've probably been in decades. I mean, universities were so moribund. Just these, mm. you know, these tenured professors sitting there talking about how socialism's inevitable. I mean, compared to 30, 40 years ago, really, we live in pretty interesting times. I mean, it's pretty incredible to just be online. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing with being online is, as you said, it allows every single individual to have a voice, which, uh, as we've seen, is, seems to be both a pro and a con on a surface level. Uh, I always say the best thing about social media is everybody has a platform, but the worst thing is that everybody has a platform. But I'm a big fan of the so-called marketplace of ideas and, of course, pretty much a free speech absolutist. And I think that the best ideas do win in the long term, not necessarily in the short term. But in the long term, if you allow people to interact and discuss and debate, then the best stuff tends to rise up. There are a few things you've mentioned which are familiar to me, but I think to a lot of listeners might not be very familiar. So it might be worth kind of going into those a little bit. The first thing was the Austrian School of Economics. So for someone who's not familiar with Austrian economics and how that compares to Keynesian or modern like modern monetary theory, so on. Uh, for someone who's not familiar with such a term, can you give a very basic level overview of that? Well, most economics today, I think, is not only not helpful, doesn't do any good, I actually mm. think it's counterproductive. In other words, I think it, it, it ill serves society. There's a lot of economists and academics who are just have a job and a sinecure, and they're actually making us worse off with their bullshit. Um, you know, so so first and foremost, most economics today has what we call physics envy. In other words, economics is a social science. It's about what human beings get up and do in the morning to try to make themselves better off. It's not like physics or chemistry. We, we shouldn't use the same method of the physical sciences where we come up with some hypothesis or idea and then we go out and test it in the real world to see if it's true. So that's that's a huge difference between the Austrian school and and what we would call neoclassical or mostly Keynesian economists today is that we say, no, no, no. The, the way we look at economics ought to be like a social science. The other big difference I would really point out is that most economists today just say, well, the, and, and so hence most government policy follows, which is, hey, you know, the way to have a healthy economy and make everybody rich is to stimulate consumption. We, mm -hmm. You know, give people more money and credit so they want to buy more stuff. Well, okay. The, the problem is this. We already want more stuff. You don't need to stimulate that. The question is whether we have the money, the productivity to buy it, right? So this, this mm -hmm. idea that we need to stimulate consumption, it obviously ignores the, the elephant in the room, which is that, well, consumption of what? You've got to produce first. You've got to have mm -hmm. stuff and make stuff and have a healthy, productive economy uh, to have the, the money for then you to go out and be a consumer and buy stuff. In other words, your job or your business or your income is what make your production is what makes you able to be a consumer. So, my, you know, ever since Keynes came along in the 30s and really created a, a, an idea of economics as as a stimulus project, I think we've mm -hmm. been pretty badly screwed up. 
so, you know, there's there's a lot of misinformation out there and it really, you know, bad economics, it leaves people vulnerable it, because they don't really yes. learn economics in high school or college. It leaves them vulnerable to these political promises, the central bankers, these other people, you know, they, they want to dismiss Bitcoin. They want to dismiss gold. Um, and it you know, it all flows from this fundamental misconception that uh that if government just gives us money and credit or central banks make money and credit easier to obtain, then we'll all be rich. Right. But, mm -hmm. but we all, we all know that we all know that intuitively. I, I mean, um, you know, D David Hume said, Hey, look, if we, in the 1800s, if, if we double the amount of money in every Englishman's pocket tomorrow, mm -hmm. nobody, but we did that evenly, let's say. Nobody would yeah, be any yeah. better off. Prices would just rise. So we've, we've, we've confused more money and credit with more stuff. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's the fundamental problem in economics today. Absolutely. And how much do you believe that that fundamental problem is the cause or reason for a lot of the downstream socio-political and economic issues. For example, if you talk to some of the most hardcore Bitcoiners, they like to say Bitcoin fixes this. They think that the problem with, you know, I, I think it's often overstated, but they often say that the downstream repercussions of the bad money system are the sort of core reason or the fundamental reason, a major part of it. I don't think that... Um, I'm not in the Bitcoin fixes everything camp. I think Bitcoin fixes some things, but I think it goes deeper than the money system. Yeah, I mean, the money system definitely corrupts us as a society. I mean, when when money's constantly expanding, when inflation's an actual, actual express policy of the U.S. Central Bank, of the Bank of England, of the European Central Bank, I mean, that's the policy. I mean, you're basically telling people don't save money. You're basically mm -hmm. telling people saving is for chumps. I mean, you're getting less than 1%, let's say, on standard savings. So that means people need to go out and they need to do one of two things. They either need to chase yield. Hey, I'm going to go buy Bitcoin. I'm going to go buy Apple stock. I'm going to go mm -hmm. buy, so, you know, even if I'm a little old lady who ought to be saving my money for the last years, you know, I need to go out and chase yield because the money I have is getting worth less and less, you know, faster than I can save. And number two uh, it, it makes people want to consume more, right? I mean, you've got all these entitlement systems like Social Security in the United States. You have a depreciating dollar. Um, you have interest rates incredibly low. So you put all that in a blender and let's say, you know, you have all kinds of weird cultural ramifications that people don't save money. Uh, maybe throughout their lifetime, instead of buying a, a Ford, you know, they buy a BMW, uh, instead mm -hmm. of going to Disney with their kids in a car, maybe they fly to Europe, um, you know, because you think, well, that Social Security is going to be there for me or, well, because it's mm -hmm. only 400 bucks a month, my car payments. You know, it just creates this high time preference where we want everything now, you know, and everything's available to us now uh, as opposed mm -hmm. to saving up and and buying it when we've earned it. So when you when you do that at a societal level, you know, at an individual level, that can be disastrous. Right. Yes. But when you do that at a societal level, I, I mean, a every generation used to 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 build up not just economic, but cultural capital. In other words, our great grandparents worked a hell of a lot harder than us, had it a lot tougher than us. But they built, 
you know, the, the building blocks of civilization. And then hopefully every generation adds that and every generation, uh, you know, saves a little more than it spends. So it adds to cultural capital instead of consuming that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, now people, your generation, I'm assuming you're a millennial, um, you know, for the first time ever, you have a generation that say, hey, we might be, we, you know, not, not necessarily individually, but collectively, we might be worse off than our baby boomer parents, you know, financially mm-hmm. worse off, among other things. You know, that's the first time in the history of the West that we can say that. So that that's a huge problem. That strikes me as a scary, scary problem. And, you know, when you look at college tuition, when you look at debt levels, when you look at the, the cost of housing, you know, you have younger people who are just not getting married, not buying houses, not sort of launching because their degree maybe turned out to be not so great or they got a bunch of debt. You know, it, it's really a profound to think about that. I mean, say what you will about America. We got our problems. But. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't that long ago. I'm old enough to remember the 80s. I mean, people had a generally optimistic sense of life, most Americans. Um, and if we lose that, wow, you know, that's profound. Yeah, I think one of the big problems that is happening in Western society and perhaps in the world in general is we're going through this transition period where I think that culturally, we are still stuck and people still believe in the old model of the sort of 70s, 80s, and 90s, especially when it comes to things like education. And the technology has moved forward, but people are still stuck in that old mindset. The perfect example to use would be uh, higher education, college and university education. There's still this prevailing, pervasive notion that Everyone needs to or should go to university and university is the way that you get ahead and it's extraordinarily important to have a degree. This mindset is both within the parents' generation uh, to some degree within the children's generation and also within the general structure. You know, you hear politicians saying this. It's the belief in the media. Of course, the universities themselves have this belief. Even employers, many of them, especially ones run by older people, they still think it's necessary, you know, a degree is a requirement. Why are so many people getting degrees? It's like, oh, well, I need it to get this job. And actually, I'm actually seeing that a lot of organizations and employers that are run by younger people are catching on to the fact that it's more about what can you do, not what piece of paper do you have. So I think that there's this shift. At the same time, universities become more and more expensive, even in the UK. Since I graduated, I graduated less than 15 years ago, and the tuition costs in the UK, I believe, have tripled. It's tripled in about 12 or 13 years. And even when I went to university, it was significantly more than it had been just 15 years before that. And then in the USA, I mean, the the cost of tuition there is absolutely insane. So I, I often say that, look, education is, education is cheap. You know, education is cheap. University is expensive. Well, the thing is, is you do need knowledge. But are you actually getting Mm -hmm. knowledge in those four years of college? Probably not. In most cases, you're probably spending way too much. You're probably wasting a lot of time. But more importantly, those are four years. That's four long years in the U.S. anyway, where you could Mm -hmm. be working on bettering yourself or you could be putting that money into a, a, a small business. You could be putting it into investments. You could be putting it into trade school or technical school. So, you know, the, the, what, 
what the internet changed is that it made basically all the information and knowledge in the world available at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. So that means all that's required to access it is enough discipline and time to do so. You don't need mm-hmm. the structure of a university setting. The reason most people still, well, a lot of people still want that structure is because they got parents, right? Yes. And their parents are pressuring them. And then their parents are upset if they're getting bad grades or flunking out or taking seven years to graduate or whatever. So that, you know, that's what it's really about. It's, it's more of a signal, a social signal or a marker uh, of mm-hmm. your ability to sort of follow through with some what's really pretty rote memorization type regurgitation, not mm-hmm. real analytical thinking or creativity or something like that. So, you know, I mean, talk, talk about old people. Warren Buffett, I think he's I, I believe he's pushing 90. Maybe I'm wrong. But yeah. one of the richest guys in the world, I mean, he describes what like half of his day is, is just reading. Mm-hmm. He just reads about companies because he's very, very cautious about how he invests his money. He doesn't want to get burned, and he still sometimes gets burned. So, I mean, if, if you tell a young person, if you have the discipline, you can go read the English literary canon. You can go read Shakespeare and Beowulf, and, you know, you can go read Dostoevsky. You can read whatever you want. You know, mm-hmm. you can go read uh, uh, ancient Greek. You can go teach yourself Latin. But you can, But more importantly, you can also teach yourself Python coding. Or you can teach yourself all kinds of things, you know, very inexpensively while you're working, mm-hmm. while you're gaining. And, and, and you know this, mo- the most important thing maybe in any job, well, equally important is sort of the soft interpersonal skills, the ability to deal with other people, not just the underlying substantive element of your job. So it's, you know, it, it's unbelievable. You know, um, I'm, I'm going to take, you know, my own son uh, coming up on 17. I mean, we might just end up having him get some basic stuff really cheap at community college, mm-hmm. you know, some basic calculus, that kind of thing, and then explore some other things on his own. And then he works in the afternoons, um, it's, you know, which has really given him a much, he, he works at a grocery store, which has mm-hmm. given him a, a much better sense of, you know, Hey, do I want to buy that thing on Amazon now that I know what five hours at work was like, you yes. know, the, the trade-off. So it, it's, I mean, it's a beautiful time, but I, I, I'm telling you, there's so many 20-somethings who are lost. And oh, absolutely. If you don't have the discipline and if you're not moving towards a goal or something, I, I hate to say it, but our culture is, is sort of saying, especially with COVID, which I consider just a, an incredibly crazy overreaction, um, mm-hmm. monstrous, a monstrous crime really. Yes. You know, but with COVID, having people sit home, having people be isolated, having people get fatter and drink more and, and become, uh, you know, more depressed, uh, it, it, you know, that's the last thing 20-somethings needed the last few years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, we're not going to see the full fallout of that um, for, you know, a, a decade plus. I mean, we, we've already seen a lot of the fallout, but Lord knows how this is going to affect, especially young people, uh, you know, children, people in their teens and so on. Who knows how this is going to affect them, you know, from health to socialization to their financial and economic future. I think it's um, it's disastrous, which is why I've been so I've been so vocal on it. Uh, there's another thing that you you mentioned earlier, which I'd like to go into in a little bit more detail, because I think it's quite a misunderstood and confusing word. And that is anarchy. You mentioned being an anarchist. 
Um, so what does that, I know what it means, but what, what does that mean to listeners? Well, to me, it, it has a very different meaning today than it would have to someone 100 years ago or 200 years ago. It would have, at that point, it would have had a very left-wing connotation, sort of a bomb thrower, somebody who wants to uh, upend everything and tear down society. I think it's the opposite. I mean, I, you know, for my sense of you is basically through Twitter. So <laughs> what I what you know that what I come away from is that you're a very you personally are a very non-ideological person. In other words, you're motivated by uh, self-improvement, by improving society, uh, and by, you know, this sort of this new breakdown between really angry, unreasonable people and just reasonable people who want society to work. And I think mm -hmm. that 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 the, sort of the old breakdown of the left and right, um, you know, it, it, you know, is really important. It, it, because to me, liberty is something that's not ideological. It's something that just sort of happens when you leave people alone. So, you know, and I get this, I get how my friends and family, uh, people in the broader culture, they think, oh, you libertarians, you anarcho-capitalists, you guys are just super ideological. You look through the world through this lens of crazy ideology, and that's not how the world really works. We need some government to do X, Y, and Z. Okay, I understand that. I would like to portray anarchism as, as very non-ideological. In other words, it's simply the private part of our lives, the part of our lives which are not uh, under the, the thumb of the state. So, mm -hmm. you know, most of what we do, I mean, obviously, there's always sort of government out there uh, looking over our shoulder more than we'd like. There's always police and courts and guns and jails. There's always regulations and taxes. But, you know, to me, anarchy is what sort of fills in the cracks of life. It's really maybe a better word for it would be common law. I mean, mm. so much of what we owe, in my opinion, to our material success, our prosperity in the U.S. comes out of old English common law, which is basically another way of saying custom, that we slowly evolve rules and traditions based on kind of what works and really local circumstances at the time, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, 150 years ago, if you steal someone's horse in the middle of the desert, you might be consigning him to death. That's his transport to water. Today, you steal someone's horse in a fancy suburb, you know, obviously that's a different kind of crime. So common law is just another way of saying, hey, how we how we grapple with things. And, uh, you know, the, the, the origins of common law were private. This was just private individuals coming together and creating what they hoped was a, a way to deal with friction society. It's a, you mean, all the friction in society is interpersonal. It's over interpersonal beefs or over property. Right. That's that's conflict is why we need law. So I'm I'm all for having law in society. I just I just wish it were largely, if not entirely, provided privately, which I think is not nearly as crazy as some people might think. Mm -hmm. What would that look like in reality, especially in a country the size and scale of the USA? If in theory you could just OK, just I don't know. You, you just had the, the power to just create how you think it should work. What would that look like? Well, I'd like to think it would look very localized. And maybe uh, local private communities would – I mean, to be fair, let, look, let, let's be fair. This is, this is theoretical stuff. I mean, sure, they, they'd probably look a lot like uh, small towns or, or HOAs or covenant communities do now. 
They, they wouldn't mm -hmm. be perfect, but I, I think if you localize things to a greater extent and let people pay for services. I mean, right now we pay taxes and it's so amorphous. It just this money just goes off to Washington, D.C., and we just have very little sense of, of where it goes and what it does. And, and a lot of what it does is bad stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So if we if we sort of flip that, if most of your taxes or your fees or however you want to call it uh, went locally, I think I think you have all kinds of models. I mean, you have private security throughout the world, first of all. And so uh, at a place like Disneyland, for example, yes, there's a cost to enter. So that that does have an effect on, you know, usually you're not you're probably not going to spend the world the day at Disneyland uh, to uh, you're not going to spend one hundred dollars to go be a pickpocket at Disneyland. I, I don't think maybe you are. <laughs> But but nonetheless, I mean, wherever you have private security, you have insurance backing it up. And so mm -hmm. what private security wants is for nothing bad to happen. And if something bad does happen, like shoplifting or whatever, they want to deal with it very quietly, very calmly, not create a scene and not get themselves into any liability by, you know, being, you know, beating up the perpetrator or, or escalating the situation. Right. Private security mm -hmm. and, and the, because there's insurance paying for it all. The, the incentive is always to de-escalate the situation where I feel like with with the sort of the police system we have in the U.S., oftentimes the incentive is to escalate the situation. And, and a matter mm -hmm. of fact, when crime goes up, police go turn to their city or their or their county or whatever and say, hey, we need more money when crime yes. goes up. But, you know, in, in a private system, you say crime's going up. We're going to you know, maybe you guys should be fired. Um you know, if you look at dispute resolution, which is all over the world, I mean, in, in maritime shipping, uh, you know, get away from the crime aspect, but get into the property rights and contract aspect. I mean, maritime shipping, there's so many jurisdictions across the world when a, when one of those giant cargo ships goes from China to Vancouver, B.C. or something. I mean, you know, the patchwork of laws you'd have to appeal to, they, they just created basically an international system of maritime law, which the shipping companies mostly accept because it's just in their own best interest to not have crazy outcomes. Uh, th this is also true of eBay, which is a really fascinating private community. You know, this is true of Uber, where you have kind of your reputation. If, if, if you're, a, you know, if you're an Uber user and you're constantly really drunk or abusive, when you get an Uber, you know, the driver can give you a bad rating. I mean, that, those, these kinds of things fascinate me. And, Mm -hmm. You know, look, some of your listeners might say, look, OK, that's great. But that's pie in the sky when it comes to a national scale of a big country with, you know, that needs defense and nuclear weapons and, and all these capabilities, a big military. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, that's probably true. And I would acknowledge that. But I, but my counter to that would be we need smaller countries. I, I mean, the okay. idea that 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 Washington, D.C., which is really just a few thousand people, is, is the boss of 330 million Americans is crazy. And that's why, I mean, I'm sure you as, as you know, visiting America, I'm sure you see this is like, that's why there's this dopey difference between red and blue states is because we don't need, we don't all need the same abortion laws. We don't all need the same gun laws. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's, and when you try to impose that, I think you just create a lot of friction. So to me, anarchism is just, a, a word for trying to get that stuff as local as possible. And if what happens locally, if you want to call that government, if you want to say, well, that's not fees, Jeff, that's taxes. Um, that's not private security. That's cops. Uh, OK, you know, mm -hmm. I can live with that. But I I just think moving towards that is a healthy thing. I get you. So essentially pro decentralization, sp spreading things out, spreading out the power base and making things more localized. 
Absolutely, which is why I'm I'm against DC. I think the EU's a bad idea. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Brexit's a good idea. I think Catalonian secession in Barcelona is a good idea. Uh, you know, I think Scottish secession is a good idea because I, look, I don't want to impose libertarianism on the world. If mm. if, if if California wants to have, uh, you know, very high tax rates. Uh, abortion on demand, very strict controls over who can have a firearm. If California wants to have free universities, hey, they got they've got UC Berkeley, they've got Stanford, uh, they have beaches and mountains and tourism and Silicon Valley and Hollywood and Disneyland. They have ports. Um, you know, if if California wants to have a very separate set of rules from where I live in a, in a little college town of Auburn, Alabama, then I think that's great. I think that's fine. Mm. Gotcha. So what are your thoughts on secession within the USA? Do you think that is a good idea, a bad idea? Do you think it's something that is inevitable or should be explicitly pushed for or should be avoided? I've seen more and more people talking about this actually over the past year. Um, I think when it was sort of floated around even just a few years ago, people would kind of look at you like you're like you're crazy or they'd say, oh, well, you know, what about China? But what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, the right continues to say this. Yeah, you, you know, if we break up, China will be a, a powerful and unchallenged. I'm not so sure that's true. I think if the United States were to break up, we'd probably the, the 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 new states would probably form some sort of defensive alliance using the same nuclear weapons, the same military, the same bases and planes and aircraft carriers we have now. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I think it's I think it's good and healthy and needed. Um, I think it's an alternative to civil war, not, a, a, you know, a, a movement towards civil war. I think it's a way of avoiding mm. it. I mean, because if you look at red versus blue in the United States, it's not really that ideological. I mean, most people agree on the broad parameters of things like Social Security and national defense and, and Medicare and all that. I mean, it, it's really it's more cultural. And mm. we've got this situation where. Because everything is so politicized, you know, we're at each other's throats over politics. So, I mean, under the current system, if somebody in California views Alabama as this racist, retrograde, redneck state, you know, that unfortunately, they do have they kind of do have to care about who we elect as a U.S. senator, because that U.S. senator is going to go up to Washington, D.C. and vote on stuff which affects California. So it, it just strikes me that if. If we had far less control at the federal level and, and far more control at the state and local level, we'd have a lot more harmony in this country. Mm. And so secession doesn't have to necessarily mean the actual literal, literal breakup of the United States from one entity into multiple wholly separate en- entities. Like, let's say, the former Yugoslavia, which turned into six or seven countries and governments. It doesn't necessarily mm. have to look like that. It, it could. There, there's all kinds of varieties of soft secession. Uh, which could happen, which which would take the form of just really aggressive federalism, uh, a, a recognition yes. that the Supreme Court can't grapple with. I mean, like like abortion. I, I mean, come on. This is just unsolvable. There are really mm. deeply held, intractable, emotional feelings, you know, not just on both sides. I would say there's three or four sides to abortion. Um, oh, of course. It, you know, and that's that's just an example where. You know, even if we don't break up the U.S. into regions, if we could just sort of exhale a little bit 
and say, mm-hmm. hey, you know, we don't want to impose ourselves. Now, the, the reason the reason I think this is so difficult politically is because I think the left thinks it's winning. The left says, hey, we're the 20th century is the progressive century. We got everything we wanted. We just got it slower than we wanted. And now it's the 21st century. We're going to pour it on and we're not going to let you, uh, you know, crazy secessionist rednecks or whatever. We're not going to give up one square mile of the U.S. to you right wingers. I I think that's Mm. yeah, I don't agree with any of that characterization, but I do think that's the mentality which makes secession so difficult because there's this sort of white savior complex where you'd say, well, you know, if we let these these terrible red states go their own way, you know, they just immediately outlaw abortion and they'd all have, uh, you know, a, they'd all have AR-15s at, at uh, elementary school. And, uh, they, you know, and, 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 you know, the, the, the black people who are still left in those states would be horribly oppressed because they'd immediately have voter ID laws and all this. I mean, you know, I think that's the caricature mentality. So, same same so, people supporting vaccine passports, yes. but never mind that. Yeah. So so progressives, I mean, conservatives are this, you know, share responsibility for this. But this universalist mindset uh, is the number one stumbling block here. There's some people who just conceptually, they just, it, you know, America's 50 states. And that, mm. you know, they just conceptually can't get by that. So I, I'm not sure that... Any kind of secession is possible unless things really get more materially uncomfortable, unless, you know, we have some sort of nasty shock. Um, because as it stands, I think it's just it's just too much of a hurdle psychologically for some people. Yeah, I, I get that. And and I mean, I, I understand it on both sides because you've already talked about the left side of the aisle. But I think also, you know, by definition, conservative means what it says. Conservative means maintaining uh, a large proportion of the status quo. The USA has been working and operating in a certain way for a long period of time. It has a certain structure, certain system, certain way of doing things. And there's a certain uh, level of respect for those institutions um, and a level of legitimacy, which is really very much like in our brains, people like to talk about social constructs, but it, it truly is a, a, a social construct in that sense. Um, and so I think that a lot of conservatives feel that, okay, regardless of how we may feel about this certain thing, it has to go through this certain structure and system and legitimacy, even if that structure, even though maybe it's been a certain way their entire lifetimes, if you look over the course of the history of the USA, actually, it started out a lot closer to what you are advocating for, so I think it's uh it's sort of it's an interesting way. I think that the the left side of the aisle and the right side of the aisle both have an issue with dealing with that conceptually and taking it seriously as a as an option, uh, but for somewhat different reasons. There's a an essay written by a journalist in the 1930s, his name's Garrett Garrett, it's called The Revolution Was. And so the, the, the thing about revolutions is we imagine that they're always bloody, violent, and have a definite start and end point. And that's not mm-hmm. true. There are, you know, re- I, I would argue a revolution is happening right now. It's, it's just under our okay. nose. So in, in the United States, 
the 1930s represented an absolute revolution where we went from mm. any vestiges of the old system that used gold as backing for money and that you know tried to l- strictly limit federal powers relative to state powers all that all, all that completely went out the window in the 1930s mm-hmm. under FDR what was left of it it really started to go out the window in the civil war so what happens is um you you maintain all the things that make you comfortable you still have a congress you still have two branches, three branches of government. You still have a president. You still have a constitution. It's just none of it's really followed anymore, and the rules have radically changed. So I think that's what you're talking about. There's, there's almost this comfort level where if we have certain uh, accessories of, of life as we've known it, that you know this revolution is, is more palatable to us. So like the digital revolution is clearly uh, leading us in, in a form of soft secession, because now we're not just stuck with our local university, our local library, our neighbors. Uh, now we can ta- we can sort of talk and interact and learn from and socialize with anybody around the world all the time, mm-hmm. m- almost free and instantaneously. So so that's a that's revolutionary in the sense that, um, you know, why does your kid have to have the local high school uh, calculus teacher? when your kid could just go online and learn from the best calculus teacher in the world for mm. that age. I mean, that's what we've done is we've, we've given everybody the, the ability to scale. And so, yeah, I would, I would argue that a form of soft secession is happening in, in the U- United States, especially we've balkanized ourselves. We're in our own ideological camps. We can curate our own media and what mm-hmm. we consume every day, what, what gets into our ears and into our brains, you know, whether that's our social media feeds or whatever, you know, we can sort of silence some people and amplify others. We can turn off CNN. Uh, we can turn off the local professor. We don't need the local library. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. So I think what's going to happen in the U.S. is maybe 20 or 30 years from now, we're going to mm-hmm. look back at, let's say, the Trump era. And we're going to say, wow. You know, we didn't quite understand it then, but it, it was, the whole thing was just transforming under our feet. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. I mean, I was in the States for the past three months. I went to 10 different states, and the states have always been different. And, of course, cities are different, let alone individuals. But I've never seen, because of the whole pandemic response situation, I'd never seen in my life such a differentiation between places within the same country. It was like entirely different worlds going from Texas and Florida to uh, New York and Maryland, even within individual states going from L.A. County to Orange County or going from Portland, Maine to rural Maine. The differences and discrepancies were just bananas and uh the amount of people that are moving i mean the amount of people from new york i met in miami the number of people from california i met in austin and dallas uh and that's just accelerating when i was in la i mean majority of people of course i have a there's a there's a bias in the people who i know and speak to but the majority of them are leaving majority of them are leaving some of them were holding out to see what would happen with the recall election but most of them are most of them are going they have plans to be out of california uh within the next six months so this soft secession as you mentioned it it's not just happening digitally but people are voting with their feet people are getting up and they are moving and that's one of the things that's as an outsider to the usa that's one of the things that's 
there's many things to me that are fascinating about the USA, but I think one thing that Americans themselves really overlook actually is the fact that there are 50 states and that if you don't like the way things are in one area, you can get up and move to a city or a state where the rules, the laws, the culture, the people, the demographics, all of that is more in line with what you're looking for. And you don't really have this in most countries. I mean, in the UK, sure, cities are different, but the, you know, there's from, from the climate to the politics, to the culture, whatever, like the UK is much more homogeneous, you know, every European country, much more homogeneous. You, so if things go sideways and you don't like the way things are going, you have to straight up leave the whole country. You have to leave the whole country. There's no, uh, you can't just move to another city or there's no states. Like you can't just be like, ah, I don't like the way things are here. I'm going to go over there because I want better weather and I prefer the laws or anything. You're kind of stuck with this one size fits all model, which makes, I think, those countries more stable in some regards. And you don't Mm -hmm. get as much of the, the USA is all, there's always conflict. There's always noise. There's always protests and riots. The USA is a crazy place. Like there's, it's so dynamic. There's so, you've got the most diverse country in every sense of the word. When people hear the word diverse, they just think race and gender and sexuality and whatever. But you've got that. You have the most uh, ethnically diverse country in the world. Uh, the most racially diverse, the most perhaps the most religiously, one of the most religiously diverse, uh, the most politically diverse, like people who are right wing in America are more right wing than they are in the UK. And people who are left wing in America are often more left wing than they are in the UK. So you've just got this huge spectrum. And then you only have two political parties, well, two, two proper political parties like on uh, that, that could actually win um, as it currently stands. Whereas in smaller countries, I mean, in the UK, you have at least three, maybe four or five, like, legitimate political parties. Sure, you have two big ones. And then in other countries, you've got five, six, seven, eight uh, political parties who are all getting a, a piece of the pie. Whereas in the US, you've got 330 million people, all that diversity. And then you've got two options, which is bananas. And um, I, I think a lot of Americans think maybe that's, like, normal because that's what they know. But as an outsider, it's like that is insane. Well, it's not working. <laughs> um, it, it, I mean, it works for the political class. Mm. They become further entrenched every decade. But I'm not sure it's working for the people of the United States. I mean, the interesting thing is, uh, you know, first of all, it's, the United States is physically vast. Yes. And, it, and it's also physically pretty empty. You could create new suburbs, new new areas of housing, you know. I mean, we're, we're pretty empty countries. So that's one big difference with Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, the other difference is that as, as different as things are culturally around the, the country and urban versus rural, uh, mountain west versus desert versus farmland versus Midwest versus urban coast, you know, I mean, those are profound differences. But for the most part, you know, yes, there are dialects, but there's one language. Yes. So, you know, in Europe, if you have an EU passport, you know, that's that's great because you can live and work legally anywhere in Europe. But, you know, the language barrier, but also the cultural barriers. I mean, even between German and Aust- Germany and Austria, which are both German speaking ostensibly, I mean, there's there's a little bit of, uh, you know, the Austrians have a little bit of an inferiority complex. And sometimes German candidates for jobs are treated a little better in Austria. They're considered a little step above. I mean, this stuff. You know, an Austrian still an Austrian, a German still a German. 
Um, mm. But in the U.S., you know, are we now starting to think that Florida man is, is, is you know, is actually a different, a very, you know, is different from a New Yorker or a Californian as, as a Frenchman is from a Spaniard or something. Mm. And so, you know, even a lot of libertarians, the fly in the ointment in all of this is this universalist mindset. You know, there's one way to organize society. It's basically got to be social democracy, Western style social democracy for the whole world. Mm -hmm. uh, with all kinds of, of uh, particular rights for minorities, a pretty strong social safety net of entitlements, you know, some some respect for capitalism and markets, but heavily regulated for environmental justice and social justice and all this, you know, and that's the model and that's it. And that, you know, any any place in, you know, in the U.S. that doesn't abide by that or any country around the world, we, we have to come along and sort of beat them over the head with a stick. And a lot of libertarians are guilty of this as well, this universalist mindset that, you know, well, if we want free markets here, there's got to be free markets in in China and India and Sri Lanka. It's like, well, you know, I disagree with that. I'm, I'm not a universalist um, at all. I, mm -hmm. I think the I think the, the reason we trade with each other and, and the reason we have specialization is because of our differences. Right. It, it you know, it makes more sense for a lot of people to pay some somebody 40 50 bucks to mow their lawn than to do it themselves right mm -hmm. i mean th th this is there's nothing wrong with that and that exists between countries as well so you know universalism was to me the unspoken disease of the 20 20th century and now mm -hmm. it's spread in the 21st and so you know left right libertarian otherwise the what the thread that they all hold to is that, you know, we've got one solution, one way to organize everywhere. And mm -hmm. that's just not, that's never going to work. That's never going to create peace because, you know, my conception of property rights might come out of this, you know, Roth, Murray Rothbard and this, this in, intense absolutism that would be very, very strange if I explained that to, let's say, somebody in China. You know, they would have mm -hmm. a very different conception of even what property is. So mm -hmm. the, this... This idea that we need sameness, it just drives me crazy. Yeah. I think you made a fantastic point there when you said that universalism was really has really been the, the disease of the past century and perhaps past centuries because that's always what it's been. It's very much our will must be imposed on everybody. You've seen this with uh, monarchies. You've seen this with imperialism. You've seen this with colonization you've seen this with communism with nazism with all of these different forms of things going on right now this moment we live in our whole problem our whole beef with the covid policies has been the universalism and i haven't actually used that word specifically but it's a great way to put it right this notion that it's all one size fits all everybody must do the same thing down to taking the same actions, taking the same medicines, even if we have to force you or coerce you to do it. Everyone has to do, you know, everyone has the same, we're acting like everyone has the same risk and is in the same demographic, has the same risk tolerance. Everyone's just the same. Everyone's body's identi is identical. And we know this to be nonsense. And it's kind of strange how that is happening where people with one side, out of one side, out of their mouths, they're talking about diversity and inclusion and tolerance and kindness and even my body my choice and then out of the other side of their mouths they're acting 
and supporting policies that are literally the opposite of everything. We have people, I never thought in my life, honestly, I never thought in my life I would see the repopularization of segregation. I never thought, I did not see that one coming. I did not see that people who call themselves liberals, not just in the USA, in various countries, would be the ones firstly being totally in bed with big pharma, <laughs> mm-hmm. but um, also being people who are outright promoting true discrimination. As you said, last year, people were in the USA, I saw, you know, they had that Georgia voting law or whatever, and you had all these Democrats, this is Jim Crow 2.0, this is uh, the return of segregation, whatever. And now, less than a year later, these same people are imposing policies that are literally segregationist, literally, and also that we know that black Americans are the least likely demographic to take these shots uh, for the Rona. And in many cases, the majority have not in certain areas. And you've got people who have BLM in their Twitter bio who are advocating that the majority of black Americans in certain states or cities are excluded and not allowed to enter restaurants, bars, clubs, go to concerts, so on and so forth. And I mean, with with a lot of these people, hypocrisy is uh, something that I expect but that sort of level of it is even to me i'm just like wow how how do you hold this in your brain together i, I don't even know how you can like this is orwellian double think how can you be saying this and then you're outright and very viciously and aggressively in some cases arguing for the total opposite well it's because charges of hypocrisy don't work in politics I mean, if they were going to work, they'd have worked by now. I mean, it's like arguing about dandruff in a foxhole or something. I mean, at this point, it's just it's it's so far gone. But, you know, I think most people who support uh, segregating the the unvaccinated, I think their response to you would be, hey, I have good intentions, right? Good intentions trump all. And I, I think that's how they would rationalize it to themselves. Yeah, but that's what tyranny, like every tyranny in history has always done that. No matter how many bodies they've stacked up, um, if you put something under the banner of the greater good. I mean, there aren't many tyrants who are just evil for, they're just like, yeah, I'm just evil. I'm just evil. And I just want to hurt people and discriminate and kill people. That doesn't tend to work very well. But every single dictator, every single tyrant in history would have claimed that there is some greater good and higher purpose and health, safety, community, security benefit, no matter how many people they slaughter directly or indirectly. So again, it's uh, while I get it on some point, it's also disappointing that we so many people don't seem to have learned anything from history. And again, these are the same people who are calling Donald Trump and, you know, right wingers, Nazis and fascists and whatever for the past five years. And now you've got actual, you know, I don't, I know people don't like to compare anything to the atrocities of the 20th century, um, but they're actually supporting policies which are far closer to any sort of true fascism than anything that, I don't know, Trump or some of these other scary leaders around the world, like Orban or Bolsonaro or whatever, um, that all, all the past five years, they they were screaming that they're going to do all this stuff, and now they're the ones supporting it. It's, I know that there's there's a level of hypocrisy, which is sort of like okay, you know, everyone's a little bit hypocritical, but 
there, there's a level of it where I'm just like, whoa, how do you, uh, I don't know. I couldn't live with myself if I was like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what we've learned since COVID certainly is, and really since Trump, um, mm. is we've learned a lot about our, oftentimes our own families, our friends, mm. our neighbors, you know, people we thought were a certain way. Um, we've learned how authoritarian people can be uh, reflexively, uh, and we've learned how they can uh, justify it with all kinds of things. So it's mm. it's been a real eye opener, in America. I think it's a realignment. And but what I hope it it's going to yield, if anything good can come out of this, is that there's there's a, a big pushback or what we might call the great realignment um, as a result of this, where people never quite view. Uh, politics and the federal government the same again. And I hope that this, you know, people talk about the military industrial complex, these, these companies that use lobbyists and advertising pressure to basically build an industry for themselves. And, and mm -hmm. clearly that exists every bit as much in big pharma. Um, yes. You know, they've captured the regulatory agencies. So if you're a big pharmaceutical company, you can bring your drug to market. But if you're a little inventor in a, in a garage somewhere, you're going to have a very difficult time competing um, you know, I think uh, what, what we need to do is, is hopefully get people to, to not trust these institutions any longer, to say, you know, Fauci's moved the goalposts so many times in the last year or year and a half. The NIH has changed its tune. The CDC keeps changing. The, the so-called experts keep changing the talking heads on CNN. Now, now we're up to four shots or whatever. Now you need the fourth. I mean, what we I mean, what we can hope comes out of this is a loss of trust in institutions which deserve it, by the way, mm -hmm. which deserve to be ridiculed and mocked, which they hate. Uh, and 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 then hopefully we turn around and we start to think about, hey, how can we build or rebuild our own institutions? That's what I hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a great sleeping going on. But there's also a great awakening, and I'm seeing this on a global scale as well. As we record this episode, I'm currently in Mexico, and it's been interesting to see. I mean, there are so many people who have moved here from other Western countries, and they have certain values and principles in common because that's what brought them out here. So I think both on a national level and also on an international level, you are seeing this. You're, you're seeing you're seeing this migration happening, and I think that. As concerning and worrying as it is for, especially, you know, I feel for certain people in certain places, hello, you know, Canada, Australia, and, you know, some spots in Europe as well. I think that in the long term, there's a lot of good that's going to come out of this. And I think perhaps it's simply accelerated some things that would have been inevitable anyway. Yeah, let's get on with it. That's my perspective. <laughs> if something's going to happen, I want it to happen in my lifetime so that, you know, hopefully my kids will have a better a better political outcome. Absolutely. So, Jeff, where can people find you online? Uh, Zuby, best place is probably via Twitter. Uh, I'm at Jeff Deist, all one word, J-E-F-F-D-E-I-S-T. Uh, if you're interested in economics, check out Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. Uh, you can spend the rest of your life there reading books for free. Awesome, man. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure okay. to talk to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the 
know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.